You're listening to The Brian and Gina Show, the official podcast of LA Magazine. Here are your hosts, Brian and Gina. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Brian and Gina Show, the official podcast of Los Angeles Magazine. I'm Gina Grad. Well, that must make me Brian Bishop. (laughs) And we have a very informative, um, educational, and depending on what side you're on, probably infuriating show today. And if you want to check it out, uh, you know, and see our our vibe, we still look like Brian says Bible salesman. I say uh, wait staff at a fast casual restaurant. There you um, go. Yeah, go ahead and um, uh, yeah, youtube.com slash Los Angeles magazine videos. And I said we still, because, you know, we've been wearing this for a few days. Um, right. I recommend the uh, Bloomin' Onion. Right. And I recommend the chicken tenders. So as everybody is probably aware by now, even if you don't live here, if you watch TV, if you watch movies, if you have any interest in entertainment, you're probably aware that there is a mega strike going on. First, there was a strike. It was just the Writers Guild, just the Writers Guild. And now it's a mega strike with the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild. Um, The writers and the actors have joined forces and said uh, to the AMPTP, the uh, Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, um, that they, by the way, the AMPTP, because you're going to hear that a lot, they are responsible for negotiating basically all industry-wide guild and union contracts. So when everyone's yelling about the AMPTP, that's why. And yeah, Gary's reminding me, I was going to say that as well. Um, This is the first time since the 1960s or 1960 that the Writers Guild and the actors have gotten together to strike. And guess what happened when they did that in 1960? The Beatles came around. Yes. And (laughs) they got residuals. For the uh-huh. first time, that didn't exist. There were no residuals, meaning, uh, you know, I tape an episode of uh, Saved by the Bell and I'm amazing on it and it runs a million times in a million countries. Every time it runs, I get a little uh, bite of that as opposed sure. to just, you know, being paid for Thank, the day. Thanks for being here. Yeah. So exactly. Long. Here's a craft services, but not if you're not union, you'll get granola bars. Um, right. So, so I imagine, like you said, everyone has a general idea of what's going yeah. on. Someone's striking. Someone's you know, saying someone's making too much money. Uh, I think our guest, uh, Jonathan, oh. uh, is going to break it down for us in very uh, as, as detailed as we want it. Yes. And he's such a find. And thank you, Brian, for sort of, I guess we'll give you credit for him, even though it's kind of not really... From you, but we'll give you credit. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I demand residuals on our guest uh, credits. <laughs> Residual compliments. That's Jonathan right. Handel is an entertainment lawyer, journalist, author, and commentator. He's an expert on entertainment labor. He's reported extensively on unions, on the WGA, SAG, after DGA, which is the Directors Guild, other unions. He's previously served as outside special counsel to SAG AFTRA and on legal stuff with the WGA. I mean, this guy knows what he's doing. And if you're not familiar with AFTRA, that's the broadcast uh, side of entertainment. SAG AFTRA a few years ago joined together. So I had been ducking SAG for a while, but then I immediately, because I was an AFTRA, immediately got uh, uh, put in there. So anyway, um, he's going to tell us everything. But it sounds like a joke when I say Fran Drescher is the president of SAG-AFTRA currently. You're like, I'm Mr. Sheffield. Like, <laughs> the nanny, the nanny. And the yep, last yep. president, do you know who the last president was? Uh, was it Melissa Gilbert? Close. Oh, yes. 
No, wait. She was at one point, right? I was right? going to say, she was the one before Okay. Gabrielle Carteris from 90210. Ah, uh, 90210, okay. So there's always somebody who's, you know, who's been around the block for a while who, you know, ends up being present, yeah. which is perfect. So Fran Drescher is not happy. She is not, you know, her usual, uh, you know, bubbly, ebullient self. Ebullient? Ebullient? I, I, Did I make I, that up? No, uh, effervescent. Yeah, that's what, thank you. Um, she had a speech recently, and when I say go viral, I mean it, because I can't get away from this thing. She did a news conference as, you know, the head of SAG-AFTRA with the greatest platitude, not platitude, but like, like, like isms, like, you'll see, but like, she's wake up and smell the coffee, you know, stuff like that. Uh -huh. But she's angry because, you know, we'll get into this with Jonathan, but like, you have your David Zaslavs, who we can't stop hearing about now, who's president of like Warner Brothers Discovery right, and your right. Bob Iger, who's back, you know, for another stint at Disney, who make tens of millions of dollars saying like, eh, no crumbs for you. At least that's how the writers and the yeah. actors see it. Sure. So I can't wait to break it down with him. But um, I want to just pull a clip of Fran just to kind of further set the table yeah, on please. the vibe. So this is from the other I, I have not a chance to see this, but I've heard about it uh, and I'm, I'm excited to oh, good. So I think in general, it was like almost seven minutes. This is the last minute of the speech. We are fortunate enough to be in a country right now that happens to be labor friendly. And yet we were facing opposition that was so labor unfriendly, so tone deaf to what we are saying. You cannot change the business model as much as it has changed and not expect the contract to change too. We're not going to keep doing incremental changes on a contract that no longer honors what is happening right now with this business model that was foisted upon us. What are we doing? Moving around furniture on the Titanic? It's crazy. So the jig is up, AMPTP. We stand tall. You have to wake up and smell the coffee. We are labor and we stand tall and we demand respect and to be honored for our contribution. You share the wealth because you cannot exist without us. Thank you. Huh? Uh, for a little bit of context, uh, former guest of the show, Matt Bellany, who uh, I, I reached out to, um, named uh, Fran Drescher, I think is his winner of the week, uh, which he does in his, you know, his newsletters nice. and his podcasts and stuff like, yeah, she uh, gave up impassioned speech that really galvanized her, uh, her backing. And here we are now they're a force to be reckoned with. Yeah. And that's the thing, because I, I got to I mean, how many times have you heard a person say, I, I got to stay off Twitter? Um, because when I'm just like scrolling and, and I guess I only follow or mostly follow people in entertainment because all I'm doing is hearing hot takes all day, seeing hot mm -hmm. takes from, you know, about the strike. And I'm going to be curious what Jonathan thinks, because at first blush, if you don't know anything about this, you my and I've seen this and I get it. I get if you are just looking at the surface oh these actors they're constantly whining and begging for stuff. And by the way, Fran, 
I think you've made a pretty penny throughout your career. So why are you even involved in this? And these actors, they all make so much money. Oh, and they want more. And you know what? I work for a living. I don't show up, go to the craft service table, say a few lines and go home for the day. I work for a living. So I'm not really concerned with your union. And I hear that and I'm like, I mean, you got a point. But uh, when you scratch the surface, scratch, scratch a little deeper, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, I think it was 80% or north of maybe 86% of people who belong to SAG-AFTRA don't qualify for health insurance. And do you know how much money you have to make a year? It's not very well, much, like, like 31000 or... $26,000. Yeah, yeah, it's not very much. So when you hear that that these are people in that are you see on TV that you assume make bank or writers that you go, well, what a cush career. And frankly, from what I hear, it used to be. Right. Um, you don't even, I mean, you're still a waiter. You're still, well, you know, yeah. you're still it, in food and beverage service because you can't live. Fran mentioned the Titanic. It, it's the, it's the, uh, it's the iceberg, you know, thing they talk about where you exactly. see the top 2%, but everything else is underwater. It's like, yeah, you, you know, Fran Drescher and you know, all these, you know, faces and names on Twitter that you follow, but there are a lot of people who are, uh, you know, underneath uh, that level, Absolutely. many levels. And these aren't just people that are like, I'll try acting and like, you know, dip a toe. These are people who like, this is their life. This is what right. they do. And they can't, they can't do it. Um, I knew someone very well for many years who was a very successful writer on television. And he had a beautiful house and three kids and two nannies. And I mean, how much did those cost? Yeah, <laughs> lap of luxury. And that, because that's what, you know, in the 80s and 90s, you could expect to be, I yep. guess, when you were a writer on a television show. It feels like those days are over, or at least they're changing like fran said it's such an outdated contract for as fast as the future and technology is changing sure sure um i have yeah I'm, i i just have so many questions for for our guest i i i and i hope he's and i i'm sure he will be i hope he can sort of give us both sides because you know maybe i'm missing something from the from the you know big cheese at the top i don't know what it is but i'd like to know well, I see Jonathan everywhere. He, he's he's making the round. So thank you for making time for us today, Jonathan. We'll bring you in in a second. But uh, yeah, he he. Uh, I think he's uh, well educated on the uh, pros and cons. Great, because I have questions, and I'm sick of. I don't want to know who David Zaslov is. I, I only know who Bob Iger is is because because I'm on Disneyland accounts, and sure. and I think you might have seen. I didn't think to pull it, but um, there's a clip of David Zaslov giving a commencement speech. I think it was at Harvard. Right oh. when this stuff started, when it was just the WGA, and in the middle of his uh, speech, you hear the students start chanting, pay your writers, pay your writers. Yeah. It does feel like, I, will, I mean, from my 30,000 uh, foot view, it does feel like the writers and now the actors are winning the PR angle oh. of this whole thing. Oh, Boston University. Absolutely. And that's a question I have. Do they care about optics? Because the optics are horrible. Obviously but not. Well, I, those are all questions for Jonathan. Yeah, and we will get to that uh, in just a moment. Yes, it was Boston University. Thank you, Gary. Um, and this show will probably be a little crazy making just because you don't have to work in the industry to know that like the things that you enjoy will be going away and replaced by AI images of the celebrities you like. Which sure. was, by the way, the first episode of this season's Black Mirror is a harbinger of things to come. 
Um, I, I, you follow it, but you haven't seen it yet. I don't think. Yeah, I, I, I'm aware. I'm, a, I've been thinking about how Black Mirror. I mean, is is like the new, new, new future technology, such to the point that it's not going to take long for these uh, fantastical episodes to to be, you know, uh, very, very pressing issues. Exactly. Some and of I them. Think- some of them. I think I've mentioned to you before, that's what I think is so brilliant about the show and harder is it's not a thousand years in the future where it's like Mad Max. We skip over everything. This is like just in front of us, which is, I think, kind of harder to I would imagine harder to write. And how we got to Fury Road. Exactly. And the first episode of this season is called Joan is Awful. Long story short, you're watching the TV. The TV is watching you. Why can't we make a Brian and and go through your day and air all your dirty laundry because you have Alexa and you have microphones and you have, and we'll just AI you and we'll show everybody what your life looks like. So sounds um, boring, but okay. I was going to say, do you want to watch me eating popcorn out of the bag in my kitchen? Fine. So because this show's going to maybe make us angry, but definitely educate us. Let's just get happy for a second. Let's talk about my favorite. And I mean it because I've told you in the past, I've shown you my collection, my favorite jewelry line, Alex Nani. Jewelry is having a big moment right now. And with hundreds of products popping up in your feed every day, it could be hard to find a brand you trust. Alex Anani has been creating meaningful jewelry for over 20 years, designing pieces that connect you with all of life's important moments. With an emphasis on value, there's truly something for everyone. You might be most familiar with their signature charm bangle. This bracelet literally created the category of meaningful jewelry and had you stacking charms from your wrist to your elbow. This piece is an icon for a reason. Completely size inclusive, each bracelet is adorned with a symbol designed to tell your story and express your unique style. Beyond the bangle, you'll find stylish, affordable jewelry for every occasion, from classic pieces to bold statement looks. Don't know where to start? Alex and Ani makes it easy to unpack the trends you're after and sprinkle in your personality too. Each piece comes with a personalized message and meaning, truly making it the perfect gift. You can take comfort in knowing that you're shopping with a socially conscious brand as well. To date, Alex and Ani has donated over $60 million to nonprofits worldwide, connecting fashion and philanthropy in an easy, fun, affordable way. Visit alexandani.com right now to discover the confidence that comes with a perfectly accessorized piece of jewelry. Right now, Alex and Ani is offering our audience 20% off with code MIDAS at checkout. Again, head to alexandani.com. That's A-L-E-X-A-N-D-A-N-I.com and use code MIDAS at checkout for 20% off your order. Feel better? I do. I'm going to take my residuals and go there afterwards. That's right. So we will talk to Jonathan uh, in a minute and he'll clear all of this up for us. We'll be right back. Okay, we are back with the man who knows everything. And even if he doesn't, it, it, he's we're not going to know the difference. So this is perfect. True. Uh, Jonathan Handel, thank you so much for making the time to help us understand what's going on with the strike. Gina, thanks. And, and Brian, thanks for having me. I'll do my best. Uh, crystal balls are, they say, they call them crystal balls. The truth is they're made out of frosted glass, but we'll see what we can do. <laughs> well, see, he's already, uh, he's already exceeded our expectations. Yeah, thank you. It's been fun. Uh, no, this is perfect. And as I mentioned to, you know, to our listeners, you have such an incredible insight into this specifically. And please correct me if I get anything wrong, but not only are you, you know, in law, entertainment law, journalism, author, commentator, but you 
specifically have expertise on entertainment labor and have reported on WGA and SAG and DGA and have even served as legal counsel for SAG AFTRA? Yeah, I was outside legal counsel for SAG AFTRA from 2020 to 2022. Uh, they were one of my clients. And then 30 years ago, I was in I was on the legal staff in-house at the Writers Guild. It was my first entertainment law job, my third law job. Uh, and also to complete the picture, so people don't think, well, he's just a guild shell. He's, you know, uh, I represent produce small and medium-sized producers, not in the collective bargaining process, but if a producer, for example, is trying to figure out what residuals they owe, and it can be very complicated, or if they have a situation where the existing residual formula or some other aspect of the contract makes a deal impossible economically, I serve as an intermediary representing them and explain that to the guild and negotiate some kind of a solution. So whenever it's a win-win, I try to be there. You're what we call a good get. <laughs> I have uh, been told that. I've been told I'm a soundbite machine as well. <laughs> so Jonathan, just um, our listeners, I imagine, aren't as steeped in this as yeah. you or almost anyone. So uh, just catch us up on how we got here. How did it all start? What's the premise? And uh, t- catch us up to recent times. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to tell you it started 200 years ago with the beginning of the Industrial Age. And, and that's because that was the beginning of the fear that uh, and the fear and the reality that labor would both be augmented by technology, by machinery, and be replaced by it. Uh, in fact, the word sabotage apparently uh, has its origins in the French word for shoe or one of the French words for shoe or sandal. And the reason for that is that an early information technology but non-electronic device called the Jacquard loom they could weave more uh, intricate patterns than most human weavers could weave. Uh, it was programmable in a mechanical way. Uh, the weavers were afraid that it was going to take their jobs, so they threw their shoes into the machinery. Those the linguistic backstory, apparently, to destroy the machinery and wow. save their jobs. Wow. And, hence the word sabotage. But this time, we are facing, obviously, we've moved on from physical machinery to electronic machinery. And um, AI, the fear is, is job replacement. Streaming, the technology is not that a uh, streaming platform is going to replace you, but that it's made the jobs uh, precarious, unsustainable, uneconomical. So this is, a, this is about technology. Uh, that's what's brought us here. And we haven't seen a more dramatic change in such a short period of time in the filmed entertainment industry, the film and TV business, um, since the end of World War II, 1945 and 46, a third of the country went to the movies every week. Mm. Think about that for a minute. Every single week, a third of the country went to the movies. Now the average is about four movies at most a year per person. It, sure. So what happened? The war, en- the, the war ended. Television came out, which had been developed in part before the war, came out of a deep freeze and was deployed commercially. In addition, people moved to the suburbs away from where the existing movie palaces uh, were built. There were other legal and, and changes and social changes as well. They all converged to movie going cratered. Uh, people started watching black and white images on a wooden and glass box in their living rooms and movie going has never been the same. Uh, it That triggered a 12 year fight over the concept of royalty payments, residuals, when theatrical movies 
were played on TV. For 12 years, from 48 to 60, none of the major studios played their movies on TV because of an agreement with the guilds. Since they couldn't reach agreement on them on compensation, they agreed to disagree and that they would not show move their movies over to TV. Finally, in 1960, you had a dual writers and actors strike. Sound familiar? The uh-huh. first, ours is the first one since 1960, right. 63 yeah. years. Dual strike and the first actor strike against Hollywood in 43 years, in 1980. And that strike resulted in the concept of residuals for those movies, for post-1960 movies. That was the compromise. It also resulted in the benefit plans, the pension and health plans, mm-hmm. that are so critical because of the crappy uh, public benefit plans that we have. Social Security, you can't live mm-hmm. on that. Uh, the health insurance, Obama, before Obamacare, you know, I mean, what do we have? You know, it's Medicare and the elderly. And, you know, it's just a very nasty tattered social safety net in this country. And so those benefit plans are one of the key things that unions won and that the unions to this day guard very, very vigorously. Wow. So, that, so we're talking about two things, essentially. We're talking about, you know, AI and we're talking about, um, you know, throwing writers crumbs in terms of uh, their their pay. When it used to be like a really sustainable, great job. Now you're kind of like you got your writing teams and we'll split the revenue and you don't get very much. And so are we talking about two different things? We're talking about, unfortunately, about multiple things. Those are those two are, are at the core of several of the issues. So the, the writer's issues, uh, uh, some of the key issues include their basic, the basic scale compensation, the, the minimums that are established by the union agreements. And it's important to remember these strikes are not about the big stars or the big showrunners or the most prominent uh, movie writers. So right. the, ones, the people that get millions of dollars, they have agents as well as lawyers and managers who negotiate those deals for them. The union agreements are about people who are middle class and even working class and who struggle at times to put food on the table and a roof over their heads in the two most expensive cities in this country. That is what these strikes are about. And these strikes are also about respect. So what are some of the, the, the actual issues drilling down? For the writers, um, basic wage increases. They want, it's a three-year contract. We'll say that the first year, the writers want 6% increase. The studios are offering 4%. They gave the directors 5%. That's probably where they, they would end up with the writers. Um, secondly, mini rooms. So instead of a room full of a lot of writers uh, working on a 22-episode series, the change in, in consumer consumption behavior that's been driven by Netflix and that Netflix was responsive to, now series are, you know, eight or 10 episodes at most uh, a season, certainly in, in the streaming and increasingly the premium cable realm. And that means you don't need as many writers. The writers are pushing back. They want guaranteed minimum staffing levels and minimum duration of employment, not just for the money, but also writers are being dismissed before the shows even start producing. Mm. And that means they don't get experience doing production rewrites, working with directors, cast, working with editors in post-production. And when you don't get that experience, it becomes harder to climb the next rung of the writer of the TV episodic writer career ladder because the the next rungs involve doing those activities, not just in a room and writing. So that's an issue. The third big issue for the writers is Shows on streaming video like Netflix, shows made for Netflix, pay the same residual, whether it's a, a hit like Wednesday or a flop like Tuesday, which doesn't exist, of course. <laughs> but you, you take the point. The writers 
want an additional overlay, call it, to the existing residuals formula for streaming video that would add a bonus in success. The, the residuals formulas in traditional media are based on things like reruns and things like um, license fee that gets paid, like for a show to move from broadcast to cable, let's say. And those things implicitly have a success metric in them because the license fee is bigger for a successful show. The reruns are more frequent, or if they exist at all, they would exist for a successful show. But the re, but the residuals formula, the the rerun, the the royalty formula, uh, for those who aren't in the industry for streaming video does not have any kind of success metric, doesn't matter how successful the show is. Well, and the two examples that I keep seeing online, and forgive me for not really having any of the details, but are Squid Game and Orange is the New Black, saying like these are cautionary tales when something explodes and everybody loves it and you, the people behind the scenes and the people acting right. are not getting what you think they're getting. That's right, and uh, th those, are, those are cautionary tales. To, you know, to finish the, the retinue for the writer's guild, they move on to the actors, um, AI. Now, when I looked at the candidate statements for board members in, who ran for Writers Guild East and West board, 100 different statements, a lot of candidates um, from back in the fall of last year, they all mentioned mini rooms. They all mentioned streaming residuals. They all mentioned minimums. They all said that we have unfinished business from 2020 when we would have struck, except COVID happened mm -hmm. and you can't strike an industry that's you know, running back to its house from COVID and it's, you know, untenable. Um, only one person mentioned AI. But I looked at that and I said, when I was writing my article for Puck, uh, where I am a contributing writer as well as my entertainment law practice, uh, I said, you know, we're now in March and ChatGPT is starting, you know, is starting to gain some real visibility. This is going to be an issue. And in fact, as everyone knows, the ChatGPT stuff exploded. There's a lot of hype around that, okay? Uh, investors spent $50 billion last year before ChatGPT uh, you know, blew up uh, on generative AI, which is the category of AI that we're talking about here, AI that generates content. Right. Um, but they, there is a lot of hype that, that is driven by the amount of money involved. And you know, my feeling about this is, Look, we're rightly impressed that the dog can dance. That doesn't mean it's going to be performing at the New York mm. Ballet next week. But <laughs> the, the writers have become convinced that it will. I mean, I wrote a, I asked ChatGPT to write me a gay romance and I, you know, fell asleep reading it. I mean, you know, not only was no, there was no sex, there was no spark, there was no romance, there was no heart, right. there was no soul, there was nothing. There's no soul, yeah. You know, I, I mean, it was like see Dick Run, except not in that way. Right. And, you know, uh, I'm on a podcast. I don't know, but anything you want, anything I want. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. But you know, the, the writers are, are very aware though, that these, the, the contracts, the guild contracts are like Roach motels contract clauses check in, but they often don't check out. And so what you agree to today is not only what you're going to be dealing with three years from now, because it's three year contract, it might be what you're going to be dealing with 30 years from now. And there's precedent for that in these contracts. And so the writers are afraid that, that if they don't get guardrails, really adequate, sufficient, guard, strong guardrails now, they never will. Move on to the actors. Basic wage increases. The writers might have been willing to settle for 5%. God really knows what the directors were willing to. The writers want six. They might settle for five. God knows why. We had 7%, 6.5%, and 5% inflation in the last three years. 
what the actors went in asking for was 15%. And you know what? It makes a lot of sense because they typically get two and a half or three, but that's one and a half to one point above right. inflation when inflation was running at one oh, to one and a half point. When you, when you ask for a catch-up payment for what you didn't get the last three years, plus what the inflation is going to be this coming year, uh, 15% is a very reasonable ask, and they're down to 11% now in their ask. They came down. The studios are at five, which is what they gave the Directors Guild, and they're not uh -huh. moving. Uh, second point, uh, the residuals point that we talked about, same issue for them, for the, uh, for the actors. Third point, AI, uh, probably a more imminent threat for the actors than for the writers because you already have deep fakes. Uh, right. Can, right. And so turbocharge that with AI. Now, there are, there's, there are monetary solutions. I mean, instead of hiring me for four days to do a voiceover job, for example, hire me for half a day, but pay me, you know, and then use the, the AI to replicate, but pay me for two and a half. It's right. what's the difference? Everyone gets some of the benefit, but are they at that kind of split the difference? No. Oh. Um, pension and health, the benefit plans, certain aspects of the funding mechanism have been stuck for 43 years. Uh, the Screen Actors Guild wants an inflationary adjustment. The studios want a more minor adjustment. And finally, auditions, uh, instead of being conducted in person, you're expected to tape your own auditions at home. That sounds great. No ga you, don't, you don't wait scarce. You don't have to sit in a room with 20 competitors. Well, guess what? It's not it's not so great because now you've got 200 or 1,200 or 2,200 competitors. Anyone from around the country or right. the world can submit. And as a result, there's a lot of pressure to get it right, which means doing retakes. Well, I, I fucked up. I'm going to do it again <laughs> and, and again and again. And to get the lighting right and the camera angles right. And who's going to read opposite you, you know, reading the opposite part you're reading again. Yeah. You know, and so a whole business uh, industry, many industries sprung up of self-tape virtual audition assistants who charge like 70 bucks an hour for these services. So now you've got, you know, two thousand, call it a thousand actors paying for the privilege as much as in some cases, a total of $300 paying for the privilege of applying for a job that they are less likely to get now than they would have gotten five, been five years ago. The union is not trying to eliminate that wow. because the horse is out of the barn but they are trying to put guardrails around it. And when you look at this and step back, you say, you know, this has become, I mean, acting in particular was already, was always precarious. This has become insanely precarious. And the union says, you know, we are not going to agree, for example, with basic wages to uh, a plan that pays our members less in three, three years from now than they made three years ago. It's right. just not going to happen. Meanwhile, the studios point out quite accurately that this is, the most, as I would say, the most challenged time for this business since the post-World War II period. Um, theatrical box office is still down 20% compared to pre-COVID. It's net, the truth is, although people don't like to say, admit it, it's never going to recover in real dollar terms, in inflation-adjusted terms. It'll get, hopefully it'll get better than it is this year, but it's, it's never going to be what it was in 2019. That's gone. Uh, linear television, gone. It's dying in a not-so-slow death, broadcast and cable, Audiences are shrinking and they are aging out of the demographic that national advertisers are willing to pay for. And streaming, it's become quite evident to the traditional media companies, to their horror and chagrin, that to compete effectively with Netflix means building what Netflix built, which is a worldwide um, streaming video, scripted video television channel. Mailing DVDs. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And the, the, in comparison, yeah, it's, you know, 
I mean, Netflix was using the Pony Express. They were sending out DVDs <laughs> and they pivoted to the most advanced yep. technology yep. available. And the trouble is Netflix did that with easy money because Netflix, A, was treated like a tech company, money, money, money. B, mm. was, was seeking money at a time when investors were willing to pay for growth and would ignore the lack of profits. And number three, at a time when the economy was stronger than it is now. All of that is gone. Okay. First of all, the legacy media companies never got the benefit of being treated like tech companies because they aren't and they ain't. Right. Secondly, uh, investors now are looking for profits, not for growth. Uh, and thirdly, the economy, of course, is more challenged overall, the economic climate than it was, you know, 10 years ago. And so the companies are, are you know, have a point. But the Guild response to that point is, is this. Whatever the case may be, you say that you're planning to spend billions of dollars building a worldwide service to appeal to hundreds of millions of people, and you're going to do it built on our labor and our work product. And if you're going to do that, you have to supply us with decent jobs, sustainable wages, sustainable jobs, and eliminate the fear of being displaced by AI. That's the guild response. This, okay. is, this is class warfare. Right. Okay, so two things real quick. One, I would never attempt to punch up your joke, your Wednesday joke. But think about this. Now, whether you say a hit like Wednesday or a flop like Fridays. That was a show back in the 80s that only lasted a few seasons. And it keeps your days of the week thing. It's not timely, but, you know, it keeps you the days of the week. You think about it. I'll think about it. Well, you work, workshop that. Yeah. Uh, number two, uh, actual real question. What what would if I sat down with someone from the uh, the other side the uh, sorry AMPTP am I getting that yeah, right Yeah AMPTP you can call them the alliance what, yeah. what would they what would they say what 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 is there what is there is it just sorry too bad need more money or do they have a point of view Well they do have a point of view as I just expressed um, they would say exactly what I said that the business is 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 challenged to a degree that it hasn't been uh, in in ages. Uh, and as Bob Iger said in a, in a, you know, in an interview with CNBC from Sun Valley, the billionaire boys club for tech exec and media executives, uh, that what the actors are asking for is just not reasonable. That's a direct quote. My response to him to that on ABC News, uh, owned by Disney, uh, Iger's company, was, uh, you know, it really is just a bit rich to see someone sitting at a club. At a, at a summer camp for rich, wealthy executives uh, who makes a thousand times in a year what a typical actor makes mm. and telling them that they're asking for too much. And it also is a bit rich to see somebody complain, among other things, about a uh, bonus in residuals in success, what we were just talking about, mm -hmm. when his contract itself, like just about every executive contract, include success bonuses and performance right. bonuses. Sure, of course, performance bonuses. If it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander, and you don't have to be a 50 millionaire to be entitled to be rewarded in success. But that's that's the attitude. And there is just, I have a good friend who's a former uh, media executive at multiple uh, you know, television studios and networks. You know, he thinks I'm crazy. He's just, you know, uh, the the guilds are going to destroy the industry. And it's just... Um, it's very hard for people who have a bunch of money to find sometimes to find uh, empathy for those who don't. And that is the very difficult human dynamic and, you know, in class, call it class warfare, class warfare dynamic here. I mean, it is just 
the level of income inequality and wealth inequality in this country has reached a breaking point for these two unions, for many unions across the country and across the city as well, uh, whether it's the hotel workers who mm-hmm. went on strike or UPS mm-hmm. who seem, workers who seem likely to, or whether it's non-unionized workers, uh, which whose anger uh, was part, part of the reason that, uh, that Trump won election in 2016. Trump appealed not only to racism and misogyny, he also appealed to white working class economic grievance. And mm-hmm. he, now he decided, uh, of course, in his infinite wisdom that the uh, issues he would address were, uh, were uh, facilitate were racism and misogyny during his presidency. Mm-hmm. He didn't do anything for the economic uh, uh, problems that he identified, but he did in fact speak to economic problems that exist uh, across this country. And it is uh, the accumulation of that and the accumulation of wealth, particularly in the tech sector, uh, has, you know, has reached a point where it's past immorality. And, you know, what's that point? Slippery slope. I mean, it's like saying, well, at 21 years old, you can drink. Does that mean everyone suddenly becomes a responsible drinker? Of course not. Right, but right. you, you know, but the, if, if you have a piece of paper that shades from black to white, a gradient, try to agree on where it, where is actually the turning point. You'll never agree, but you will mm-hmm. agree that on one side it was white and now it's turned to black. And we are deeply in the black on this. I, I have so many, so many questions based on what you just said. But I, I have to ask, the DGA seemed to have just sort of floated by and made their deal. And it seems like, ooh, you know, you're supposed to stand with your sister unions. And I'm wondering how much uh, of an impact, negative impact, did the DGA not standing with the unions uh, have? Well, they got uh, some blowback from their own members and more from some of their own members, I should say. I mean, the the deal passed with an 87% vote. Mm. Typically, you see mid to high 90s okay. uh, on these deals. So it's you know, a little soft, but not a uh, not a, an overall scream of, of anger at leadership right. Uh, right. by any means. And, and, and the turnout was robust. It was about 41% turnout for the uh, the ballots. So you know, I, I take that as an expression of the uh, you know the feeling of membership. Um, the DGA did a, leadership did the deal that in their judgment was the right deal for their union. There is a tension between on the one hand, uh, you know, solidarity between unions, which first of all, it's, it's, it's been historically very difficult to create solidarity between the directors and the writers and the, and the directors and the actors that's improved somewhat, uh, in the last few, uh, three year cycles, uh, last five years, maybe, but, um, it's, it's proved difficult, but there also is a legal tension because the, the, each union has a duty, pardon me, to bargain in good faith with, uh, with management and management has a corresponding duty. So, uh, you know, you can't, it's, it's legally dubious whether the DGA could reach a point in their discussions with the Alliance and say, you know, we, we think that deal's okay for our membership. We think it's, it's, it's reasonable, but it would really piss off the writers and the actors. So we're going to mm. walk away. I, I don't think that that's consistent, and and I'm not a labor lawyer per se. I I I know the guild contracts, and I know some labor law, um, but I it doesn't feel consistent with the duty to bargain in good faith, nor with the another duty the the so-called duty of fair representation to their own members, because mm. uh, some of their own members would say, wait a minute, you want you know, the deal was it was okay. You know, I mean, it was, maybe it wasn't stellar. Uh, 
It wasn't historic the way the TGA spun it, but you know, but it was solid. It was a solid deal. And now, but you're walking away, you don't right. represent the actors, right? You right, right. You're the director's guild staff. Um, you know, just as the director's guild said, and the writers guild reiterated, you know, if you want to make a deal with us, you have to make a deal with us. We are not going to feel bound by what's called pattern bargaining and just accept the, the parallel corresponding terms that the DGA accepted. Just because they accepted 5% basic wage right. increases doesn't mean that's going to work for us. Just because they didn't even try to get a success overlay or success metric for the streaming residual, that doesn't mean that's acceptable to us. Even though a lot of the residuals mm -hmm. formulas are parallel between the unions, and even though the basic wage increases until the last couple of cycles tended to be in parallel as well between the unions. Ooh, thank you. I mean, and, and that's I mean, that's fair when you said, you know, is it better to stand with your unions? Absolutely. But, you know, we don't represent them. I mean, that's a that's a fair perspective. Pension. Yeah, of course. And just to get back to the Zaslavs and the Igers, um, I don't know who it was. I don't know if you know who it was, but there was that unnamed exec who, uh, you know, had an interview with Deadline saying that the WGA strike should continue until union members, you know, lose their houses. Um, okay, that's probably something you say to each other. You don't say it out loud. But what's with the What's with the animosity? I mean, is it? I, I'm just wondering that our country seems more divided than ever. Is this just a reflection of like, well, screw you. I don't care if we starve you out of your house. Like, when did that become a thing? Or am I being naive? Well, it, it, it does. Uh, it does, at least in part, reflect that. And it, it predates that as well. The, the animosity between and, and lack of understanding uh, between uh, by by the companies in particular, lack of understanding of the unions and the animosity in both directions. Uh, uh, I mean, 15 years ago during the writers' strike, the uh, before or writers' negotiations that led up to the strike. At one point, the guild apparently wouldn't offer the alliance enough chairs at their headquarters so that everyone could sit down. You know, it's I mean petty stuff. Um, but wow. Uh, but the you know I, I do have to caution on that comment. By, you know, that was reported in Deadline. Uh, we don't know the seniority level of the executive. Mm. Um, I would also uh, note as a caveat that Deadline is a publication that's not always journalistic. It does not have editors, for example. Um, I have been attacked in Deadline, not by that reporter, but by another one. Uh, I was attacked uh, several, several times, as well as by earlier by the founder of Deadline. And what I object to is that in Three, those three or four cases that I'm thinking of, I was not contacted for comment. What? Absolutely. Feels like a dropping of the ball. I did not contact her for comment uh, at all. Interesting. I, and I was called a sleaze and I was called a, you know, drive-by that a piece I wrote for the LA Times was a drive-by hit piece and on, on Matthew Modine, who was running in one faction in SAG. I'll mention factions in a minute because that's interesting. But, you know, so there is a, there there's a, some of the reporters there are very journalistically rigorous. Sure. Some of them are in between. Some of them okay. are, can be sketchy and there's no editor. There are no editors filtering that. And that's the way they choose to run their business. You know, so, you know, so I, I, I put a little bit of a, of a question mark over that and, and how senior that person is. It's important to note that the Alliance has said that, that whoever that was, if, you know, if anyone uh, is not speaking for the Alliance, uh, it's also important to note uh, apropos of the climate in the country that Ron Perlman recorded yeah. 
a video, a social media post uh, in response to that that said, am I allowed to say the F word? Sure. Uh, it, it said, you know, you know, basically, fuck you, motherfucker. Bring it on. There are a lot of ways to lose your house. Not all of them are economic. Yeah. You know, and it just was, I mean, it was thuggish. It was absolutely thuggish. <laughs> it was absolutely unacceptable. Yeah. Uh, the degree to which people, you know, the the internet, the, the, the thing that's confusing for people psychologically about the internet is that it erases a lot of different boundaries that we intuitively are attuned to. The boundary between yeah. personal, and, personal and private versus public, the boundary between transitory, you make a remark in passing and it can fade, versus the permanent, or the, the difference between oral comments, which are more transitory versus written and versus recorded, uh, the difference between local versus national versus global, you know, make a comment like Perlman did, and it's you know global. Nice. Uh, in the in pre-social media, it would have been something that he'd say to a, a to, you know a couple of friends over drinks, sure. and sure. it wouldn't have been anywhere else sure. than that. Um, so all of that, you know, plus the political dissent dissension in this country that you know that Trump activated and uh, you know and accelerated, uh, you know, and poured accelerants on uh, those two. Those clearly, you know, influence that, the, you know, those kinds of comments. But there is pre-existing, as I say, there is anger. And it's, I think there, you know, the anger by the studios, it's it's the same thing. It, it's, a, you know, what are these uppity unions? And it's, and it's an attitude towards people who make less money and have less money that is not consonant with the attitude that they have towards people who make more money. It seems uh, to be one of these, they should be so lucky. You know, just be grateful for what you have. It's a let them eat cake. And, you know, <clears throat> Carol Lombardini, the president of the alliance in the negotiating room, said something along the lines of the following. And the exact quote is not really available. The people just differ, disagree on exactly what we see, you know, and say he said, she said, he said, he said situation at this point. But she said something along the lines of when they're talking about, you know, well, we're going out on strike and. Uh, you know, but we should talk, the, the door is open and we want to talk in the future and stuff. And she said something along the lines of, you know, you can't really talk while you're striking uh, because civilized people don't do that. Ooh, hmm. boy. Now she immediately walked it back and the Alliance claimed she was misinterpreted and, and exactly what the words were, but it was along the lines of civilized people, you know, don't strike. Well, you know what? I, I haven't known Carol's salary, and I won't. And for the sake of my relationship with her, I won't repeat it here. But I will tell you, the AMPTP is a nonprofit, not a charity, but it's a nonprofit, which means it has to file a form nine ninety every year. That is a publicly available IRS. Uh, Hold uh, on, form. go for it. And I I published an article at, in the Hollywood Reporter, which I worked for ten years during my law practice, um, uh, stating her salary and. You know, they were not happy with me, but I said, look, you know, we've, we've done stories on the union leaders' salaries before. It's a goose and the gander. Um, but uh, you can bet that if when it comes time to re-up, if she wants to re-up, um, that if they that if the board um, tells Carol, we love the work that you're doing, but it's tight times, so we're going to cut your salary by 50%, well, you can damn well bet that she would walk. And what yeah. is walking but a strike? Just yeah. one person. 
And she makes course- a very comfortable living. We'll say that into the you know low uh, millions. And it's uh, I don't know if this is correct, but when I'm just Googling, it says during roughly the same period between 2013 and 2020, when her salary basically doubled or more than doubled, writer's pay has declined by 23 percent. Well, I want to I mean, adjust it for inflation. Yeah, I want to give a note of caution on that. The Writers Guild uh, has a tendency, the, the, the structural changes in the industry and the anecdotal testimony of writers supports the concept that the writers, the writer's pay has dropped dramatically. But the Writers Guild cherry picks figures. And the one figure that I want that they, or set of figures that I want that they have never provided is what does the typical writer at various levels of seniority, a staff writer, you know, a co, you know, a senior writer, blah, blah, blah. uh, What do they make in a year? Not what is the minimums and how those change right. and who's working a minimum, but because you know what, when you go to pay your mortgage or your rent, you don't pay with a page ripped out of the Writers Guild contract that says these are the minimums. You right. pay with cash that you have in your bank account. And right. throughout the year, hopefully, you earn cash and it goes in your bank account and then it goes out of your bank account. And how much you made in a year compared to how much it costs to live in LA or New York, the two most expensive cities in the country, that's what's relevant. And how has that number changed over the past? five, 10, 20 years. Uh, so when people say, well, they declined 23, I, you know, there's the, you know, the truth is the, is indeed the first casualty of war. And there, you know, there are elements here that are, that I can't completely uh, sign on to, but you know, the bottom line is that it's, it, I mean, I asked a question in 2017 when the writers first started complaining People were like, what are you complaining about? This is peak TV. Uh, you know, hey, this is supposed to be wonderful. All these new jobs for writers, all these mm-hmm. new series. I mean, television critics are pulling their hair out trying to keep up with the new series, right? But I asked a question that no one else was asking. Uh, and it's because I have an applied math background, I guess. Um, I said, you know, there are a lot of new series. We know that FX statistics department releases graphs every year that go whoop, up. Um, nice colors too. Um, huh. But we know that the number of episodes per season is declining. How many episodes of scripted television content in aggregate are produced in this business in a year? So I call that fact because that's the amount of work to do. It's not right. the number of series. So I called facts and I asked if they had stats on that. The guy screamed at me, he goes, do you expect us to count episodes? I'm like, dude, dude, just asking. I found data at a place that might seem surprising. Um, at the Bunch African-American Studies Center at UCLA. And the reason I thought I could get data there, and I was right, was they, from time to time, would publish a series of reports where they coded every single episode of television for racial representation. So I knew wow. they could take raw numbers, right? What I Here's what I found. In a four-year period from 2011 to 2015, when the, the number of series had gone up by 50%, according to their data and the FX data was pretty similar. The number of writers working in television, according to writer skill data, had gone up by 20%. But the number of series of total series in ag- uh, episodes in aggregate had actually briefly dipped and was only up by 6%. 20% more writers, but only 6% more work for them to do because mm-hmm. writers were hired by the series, but paid roughly speaking by the episode. That's the fundamental disjunct the fundamental disconnect in the labor market. And that article went viral among showrunners within five minutes. Uh, and you can see why, because no one 
it suddenly shined a light that no one has seen on what is actually going on behind the scenes here structurally. No one to blame, just structurally. And Variety updated did a report of a couple of months ago that included an update on those stats and the the um, the number the number of series has continued to grow. I, I think in the last five years it was it's up by twenty five percent or something like that. Um, the number of episodes um, has slightly declined over that period by, by about 5%. The number of hours of scripted television, which is different than the number of episodes because the mix can change between half hours and one hour. Right. So it's also a, a, an interesting and useful stat uh, was flat. So the number, you know, people think we're still in this frothy, at least up until the strikes, we're still in this frothy period of all these new series. And oh, no, no, I can't decide what to watch. I can't decide what to review. Um, the, the work isn't growing. The amount of work available is not growing. So you, great. You got staffed on a series, but guess what? There's only half a loaf for you to work on. Right. Wow. It, it, it feels like a shell game. Like who knew all these numbers were being moved around? I mean, you did, but that's so interesting. I, I'm, I know we have to sort of, I mean, we have to let you go at some point, even though we don't want to, um, I'm curious when it comes to people who aren't in the union, like people who just enjoy TV, just hypothetically, hypothetically, how many people do you think, since you're a stats guy, would have to cancel their streaming service membership for the people at the top to notice and be like, oh, people are voting with their wallets right now? I think a a fairly small number because- Interesting. What the people at the top will notice more than the cancellations is the reaction by Wall Street. And Wall Street is very nervous about this industry. Sure. The the, the pivot that I mentioned from one, from caring about growth to caring about profits occurred in March of 2022. And it happened because Netflix, after 10 years of subscriber growth, lost out of their 150 million subscribers, roughly, um, they lost around um, a million, one per, less than 1%. But that was enough to just destroy the investment community. The, the stock prices cratered. The investment community woke up and said, what the hell do we care about growth? We care about profits. Wow. So I have oh. at least a tentative theory that a relatively small hit to sub numbers uh, would be noticed by the street, especially if amplified by guild uh, PR campaigns. And would have an effect on the stock price, an effect on the market, effect on the street, and therefore be noticed by the CEOs. Whew, that wow, was that's, a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. And that's actually a surprising, a surprisingly optimistic answer for people who are, you know, sort of union, you know, pro-union, because I thought you'd think, oh, you know, there's never going to be enough. They don't care, but they do care. Well, it's hard, you know, they, it's it's hard to get people to cancel, but you know, the, the companies will, the companies will help people cancel. And that, you know, I mean, look, at some point you'll start to see reruns and things and, you know, uh-huh. people want to watch stranger things, not the same old things. And <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Thank you. That's, we, we'll put that one in the inventory as well. And, you know, uh, and it just, it, it reaches a point where people are like, you know, F this, I'm not going to pay for Netflix. I'll just spend my time on TikTok. And get ready for unscripted and game shows and things that aren't affected by the union. Well, that, right, right. I mean, we're going to, and foreign production, which Netflix is 53 for that. So we're going to see that. 
my less optimistic uh, fear as to when this might end or the beginning of the end. Tell us. 15 years ago, the writer's strike ended uh, in, in significant part because by the time it had been a three month or so strike, we were in January and the Oscars were looming and they were going to be destroyed by the actors boycotting them the same way right. the actors boycotted the Golden Globes in sympathy with the writers and right. turned the Globes into a cut rate press conference. And ABC didn't want that because they were broadcasting the Oscars. The movie studios didn't want that because it promote these promote movies. And even ironically, the writers killed, you know, and the actors didn't, in a way, didn't want it either because if they had destroyed the Globe, the Oscars, which they would have done, they didn't have anything big to do next. Mm. There was only one arrow in the quiver. So ironically, the threat of destroying the Oscars was more potent than the actuality would oh. ever have been. Wow. There is, when you look at this summer and the fall, there is nothing equivalent to that. And I woke up a morning ago with a sense of horror and realized it might be the Oscars again. We might yeah. have these, we might have little to no progress and no real reopening of talks until January when the Oscars boom again. And I just, I hope that's not the case. I hope that, that, but you know, Iger, Iger and Peter Chernin, Fox executive, were the people that spearheaded um, getting the DGA deal done 15 years ago and uh, were involved in getting the writer's deal done as well, I believe. This time around, and Chernin is no longer, you know, at a big media company, his own operation. And this time around, not only has Iger delegated labor relations to his two deputies, and I talked with someone very familiar with the executive ranks who, when I told this person that, they said, it's above their pay grade. What? Yeah. It's just, I mean, with, with all respect to Dana and, and, and Alan, it's just they're not the CEO. They're the level right. below the CEO. They're, right. One of them may turn out to be the successor right. to Iger, but they're not the CEO. Not now. Not now. And not only has Iger washed his hands of labor relations in this current dispute, he's thrown gasoline on the fire with the sort of remarks that we talked about earlier uh and you know is appears to be disgusted with uh you know with the whole thing so this is problematic because who is going to bring the companies onto the same page the alliance operates on the basis of consensus and the companies have more disparate business interests and business models now than they did 15 years ago because three of them own networks brought major broadcast networks and are not you know, are, are weeping as the fall season sinks slowly into the sea. Three of them are pure play streamers. Netflix in particular is probably popping champagne corks in private, you know, because where are people going to go for scripted? Yeah. If they, they'll go to Netflix as long as Netflix still has some, some backlog. Yeah. Go to and the then, archive. Or, or the archive. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can say as a streamer, you know, well, you, you I can't believe you never watched Stranger right. Things. Now's your time right. to catch up, um, you know, and, and then three of the companies, don't have as much of a dog in the hunt. Fox, the part of Fox that remains after most of it was sold to Disney, Fox Broadcasting, it's mostly unscripted. So, you know, fall season, scripted, destroyed, not the biggest thing. Uh, you know, Sony Pictures, supplier, they, they don't have a TV network, but they supply to TV, but they supply mostly to streamers. I looked at what they're doing these days. They're, they're not supplying to the broadcast networks. So for them, you know, fall season, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter that much. You the know, consumer will will 
be affected way down the line compared to the people inside the industry, I think is what you're saying. That's right. But I am saying also that the, the companies fall in three different buckets that are affected in different ways. And, right. until, and getting them on the same page on their side of the table is a prerequisite to doing a deal across the table. Right. Which is insane, like you said, because they don't have the same goals. They don't. They have overlapping, disparate, different goals. That's right. Wow. Well, I mean, we, it, you know, Amazon, I'll leave you with Amazon. Yeah, please. Um, Bezos once said, having video attracts people to become members of Prime, to sign up for Prime. Right. On another occasion, he said, Prime members over-index in purchasing behavior, which is a fancy way of saying they buy more crap. Mm -hmm. And on a third occasion, he said, when we win a Golden Globe, we sell more shoes. It's that direct. Their business model is, you know, Netflix has to live on the subscription fees. Amazon, the subscription fees are the tail on the dog. Right. They're the loss leader. It's a loss leader. It's, you know, it's just, it's a tail. It doesn't weigh, and it sure doesn't wag that big dog. Yeah, you know, the 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 streaming uh, the the video service is like a little. It's like the cherry on the Sunday. It's added value. It's the cherry that brings people in, right? Uh, because they see the Sunday and then they start purchasing everything. And I'll I'll say this, you know, they are such a data oriented company that if I were running Prime Video ten or twelve years ago, I would look at. I would define the concept of a fan. You know, they watched at least three episodes, at least three quarters of the episode, whatever. Fans, and I would look and I would see, okay, fans, the man, the high castle, big show back then on Amazon. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh right? yeah. Um, they over-index in purchasing World War II books, no surprise. Um, garden implements, who knew? Boots <laughs> and um, nail clippers. You know, fans of uh, Mrs. Maisel, they blah, blah, blah. I would have a report on that on Bezos' desk without even being asked or I wouldn't have a job because that's how data-oriented these companies are. Mm. And not only that, to, to say fans over-index and purchasing World War II books, I wouldn't even have to do a statistical correlation because I know exactly the name of every person that's watching my show. And I know right. exactly the name of every person that's purchasing product. <laughs> so it's just a matter of saying, of counting how what product and how, how many people buy. And versus the traditional media companies, I had a conversation with a senior universal guy, president of product, President of this, that, or the other thing, no longer, uh, 12 odd years ago. And I said, you know, Netflix knows what I like. Amazon knows what I like. You guys don't have the vaguest idea what I like. Yeah. You know that I like such and such a movie because the guy's really cute. You know that I like such and such a movie because it's about such and such a subject or it's set in Boston. I lived in Boston, Cambridge for 12 years. Or do you know? You don't know any of that. Doesn't that bother you at least a little bit? And what I what did I get? condescending answer oh well you know tut tut you don't understand how the business works well it's not the way the business works anymore and he's not yeah, yeah <laughs> we're not we're far away from nielsen families that one family represents how many hundreds of thousands of people right right wow wow that is a, a tangled web oh my god jonathan you are I, I somehow you've exceeded our expectations <laughs> I can't, I, I, please, please be open to, to talking to us again, because the, you are the one. Thank I, you. Um, your, your frosted crystal ball makes, I mean, it makes sense. You know, everything, you can't predict the future, but boy, do you have the numbers down. So, um, unfortunately. Yeah, thanks for being a part of the show, John. My God. Yeah. And it feels like, you know, this is going to go on. So unfortunately we'd like to soft pencil you in for, you know, two months from now. Absolutely. Um, 
And I know people will have questions or thoughts. Um, where can they find you? Just like, on, are you on social media? Do you want to be found? Do you not want to be found? Sure. No, I'm, uh, and I just realized I've been, I hope the audio has been good. I, my mic was uh, not pointed in the right place. It, it was great. Was the audio beautiful? Good. Thank you so much. Um, the, uh, the answer to that is my, um, my website is jhandel, J-H-A-N-D-E-L.com. My substack is jhandel.news. Everyone's welcome to sign up for my Substack. Perfect. Uh, and in the footer on my um, webpage, you'll find links to my email address, my socials, and so forth. And I, I welcome, I write for Puck. I practice law. Um, I appear, I appear on, and, and this was a surprise, I appear on local Fox 11 every week. They have me every Wednesday uh, for the last Beautiful. nine weeks or so. And they're, they're great. Um, so you can find me there as well on the six o'clock. Uh, and I welcome uh, hearing from people who can tell me what I've gotten wrong and tell me what I don't know and what I need to know. Oh, that's great. I bet there's such a bidding war to get you right now. Oh, my God. Between Fox and who else knows? I've um, I've done 100 media hits in the last two months and so uh, 30 in the last uh, few days. Well, we are so Thank grateful. Thank you for yeah, slumming yeah. it with us. Right. 1,300 in the last 15 years. It's been oh. a, quite a quite an experience for me. And, and I was shy as a kid. Oh, <laughs> I'm glad you beat that. Well, yeah, yeah, I think you just have to learn how to be an expert, and then you get over it real quick. Well, I got involved in local politics in uh, Cambridge, uh, gay politics and democratic politics. And um, you don't uh, deal with union leaders, uh, you know, city councilors and on and on and, and get any where you need to get right. uh, without. Uh, if you don't have the chutzpah. Yeah. yeah, right, right. Uh, and and you've been and with our publisher, Chris G, Christian Lanella on Thursdays, right? Um, I don't think so. Gary, am I wrong about that on Fox 11 Local? Who? who Oh, Gary might be giving me some bad intel. He's probably writing fast and furiously right now. Well, anyway, I just want to well, give a shout I, out. I, I, I oh, with separate me. appearances. Separate appearances. I just oh, want to okay. give a shout out to Chris Cheeks. He's a great guy. Um, okay, Jonathan, you are fantastic. We are so grateful that you made the time. And this is going to be one of those episodes that anytime anyone has a question, I'm just going to say, you're just going to have to listen to this episode. It'll clear everything up for you. It'll raise more questions, but you'll have a better understanding of indeed, what the hell's indeed. going on. Um you're just you're just the best. Uh, all right. Well, let's get out of here because we all have a lot to download in our brains and a lot to process after that. Um, you can find us, of course, at Gina Grad at Bald Brian on Twitter and Instagram. Hit up Jonathan uh, because he's the man. And if he has time for you, maybe you'll get a response because he's a busy, oh. busy man. I, I, I answer my phone. Okay, I would say I'll be the bad guy. Don't just just keep it succinct. He's a busy guy. Um, all right. We love you guys. We can't wait to have Jonathan on again. And until next time, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Brian and Gina Show. To get in touch with the hosts or buy their books, hit them up at at baldbrian and at Gina Grad on Twitter and Instagram or by email at podcasts at lamag.com. To get connected with LA Magazine, hit them up at at lamag on Twitter and Instagram. Talk soon.